Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. This is part three of a conversation with Dr. Susan Friedman. If you haven't listened yet to the first two podcasts, I suggest you begin with those. This is one of those conversations that I wish I could have kept as one episode. When I was listening to it, all the threads tied together so perfectly. But it would have been way too long for one episode, so I did split it into three parts. We've been talking about Susan's new article, Why Animals Need Trainers Who Adhere to the Least Intrusive Principle, Improving Animal Welfare and Honing Trainer Skills. It's a long title, but basically it's an update of her 2004 article, What's Wrong with This Picture? Effectiveness is Not Enough. That that article really introduced the discussion of the hierarchies of intervention strategies into the animal training community. You can read her articles in her website, behaviorworks.org. Last week, we considered the role that ethics play in our training choices, and that led us to the question, in this age in which we have access to an abundance, some might even say an overabundance of information, how do you choose? Where do you begin? How do you build for yourself a useful understanding of behavioral analysis, of training, really of anything in which you want to develop some degree of expertise? How do you avoid going down the garden path with information that really won't take you in the direction that you want to go? We're going to let Susan answer that question. If we come out with our most complex behavior analysis model for understanding, predicting, and changing behavior when it needs to be changed, my feeling is that we will overload our newcomers and they will turn away. And so I've always characterized my work as behavior 101. You know, the the beginning, basic understanding of behavior analysis. Now, 20 years later, 40 over the whole course of my career, uh, 20 over my animal career, my non-human animal career, because people are learning more, we have more contact with um, people, there is more interest and there is or there are better ways to get the information to them. It's not just, you know, when I was coming up, it was predominantly Uh, university classes. That's how you learned behavior analysis, by going through a university system. And nowadays, because of all of the great podcasts and webinars and conferences, more and more information at uh, the wide variety of levels of expertise are available to people. And that's both a curse and a blessing that I think is worth discussing with you as well is that relates to your question of ethics versus science is, you know, how do we disseminate this information? That too 
is um, in the purview of our science. Alex touched on it with her question. How do we change, ethically change, on a society-wide level? That's something that I've really deliberately thought about in my work is how do I roll this information out given the pervading ethical stance being very different than our own, you know, an ethical stance where effectiveness is the sole criterion versus the process by which we're effective, which is our ethical criterion. How do we roll this out in that context, in a context where people are shocking animals, where people are, you know, uh, spraying them with hard hoses to move them and so forth? How do we roll this information out? And so I've been more deliberate than it may appear in picking and choosing what my message is made up of, what my curricula are made up of, what my presentations and my articles are made up of. I am rolling out to those people who are beginners. And I'm thinking that they need to have the fundamental layers of brick, the foundational layers of brick laid first, before we then launch into our more complex understanding of behavior, behavior change, and um, behavior change programs. So that's something that people who would ask, why would she say this, might find that answer. Because the audience that I'm speaking to, or the goal is to lay very solid foundational bricks from which we can then get more complex. But we don't have that university um, structure in play as much. And that's a good thing that information is available widely on the internet and through these um, social media ways of getting information. And what I'm seeing that is concerning me, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, is that one of the things we lose with the formality of a university curricula is moving people through beginning understanding competencies to intermediate to advanced. And I'll give you an example and really no disrespect intended, but I got an advertisement for a webinar for predominantly dog trainers the other day, but animal trainers in general, uh, for understanding the intricacies of um, anesthesia. And I thought, this is so interesting to me. We need to pick up this question. Why would I need to learn the intricacies of anesthesia? That's the veterinarian's job. The more I know, the better I'm able to protect animals. But there's only so much time. Would it not be, you know, to build expertise, would it not be better for a behavior consultant to build expertise in functional analysis, let's say, you know? So I, I ask this question with no, I can't say no judgment, but I mean no harm when I share with you that I'm watching 
the degree to which all levels of expertise are just sort of glutting into the internet. And I'm worried that without the right competencies to build on, to get to those levels, or I'll, I'll just end with this last thought and then turn it over to you to, to learn from you. Another way of saying that is um, if uh, the expertise of an experienced behavior analyst is needed, would a zookeeper not do better to bring that person in than to teach those zookeepers these higher level, you know, more complex applications and help them get really competent at the fundamentals first? So this is one of the ethical um, questions. The reason why I share this is because you say the difference between the science, which is available to everyone now, as never before, with our ethics, when we lose the formality of competency building, which I love that we're losing, that you don't need to go to a university to become a competent in any field nowadays, really. What's the negative side of that? And what do we want to do about it? So that's another underlying and implicit belief system in my article and in my work is the audience who I'm talking to and the belief system that just because you can understand my words doesn't mean that you should run off and do, you know, a complex analysis. Better to call people who have documented expertise in that. You mentioned the pathological versus the constructional model. This is one of those things that I struggle with always in the teaching because, for example, in the clinics, we get people who have a wide range of background experience, a wide range of exposure to my work. Uh, So you might have somebody who's ridden dressage for 40 years, but who's brand new to my work. And they want to jump in and say, okay, how do I use clicker training to ride? Right. That is what I'm describing. Yeah, I can't possibly answer that question in the way that you expect it to be answered. Because for me to answer it means that I have to go, for me, to sat, for me to feel satisfied that I am answering that question, I have to go back and build the bricks. Right. And I know that you do in your, I watch you, I've gone to your presentations and your hands-on workshops and I've seen how you build that in us yeah so and if you don't build the bricks Mm -hmm. you end up with I can give you words I can give you um I I can jump in at the level of complexity that would assume that you understand all of the bricks and Mm -hmm. all of the language and all of the steps that have gotten to this point in the conversation where I'm answering that question as though you have a full understanding of everything that is covered in the books, the DVDs, the webinars, the blogs, the you know, 20 years of writing and producing material on how do I apply this to riding and that you are, you've been with me through that whole process and you have an understanding of my work. And now I'm going to answer that question at this level of analysis and you will follow it. 
And it will be a beautiful discussion and we will both enjoy it and we will both learn from it immensely. And our, and your horse is at a level where uh, you will see those, you will see our discussion expressed in his beautiful behavior. But missing that, what you may end up with is a mess or, uh, well, that doesn't work or she doesn't know what she's talking about, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and so it's the same struggle of how do you put the bricks in? And, and it's, I think, an underlying that is the teaching of the importance of this process of building the bricks. Yes, and that it's a deep expertise. You yeah. know, one of the phrases that I've been pops into my head now so frequently recently is, or the question is, do, does uh, an animal trainer or a dog trainer or companion people, dog caregivers, do they need to be behavior analysts? If we think they do, then we have to go one way, delivering the information in a systematic way, as you described. Yes. Or maybe they just need to know those fundamentals that improve everyone's power over their life and those around them, and then call us in as I would call you in for, for a horse problem. You know, I think we are on one level bombarded with false information promoting coercion and force. Mm-hmm. There is a trend where people turn to the internet for solutions. People are owning dogs and horses and uh, and are met with challenges, behavior challenges. And so I think that giving the kind of work that you're doing, the two of you are doing to provide people to even know where to look, because you say, should we, should we really educate people in becoming behavior consultants or should we just urge them to call us in, but I, you know, when you first start in this, I, or I have a friend who shares my values and she had, you know, a puppy and of course, you know, normal um, puppy training challenges arose. And so she first called one type of trainer. And when she described the first five minutes of the sessions, I said to her, Sylvie, this is not for you. You, This is not what you want. Because this person was advertising that they were doing positive training, but they were not, or they were mixing things. You see television programs all the time. Still today, I mean, Caesar Milan may be long gone, but there's still programs where you might see a clicker come up, but it is, you know, it is mixed up with punishment and it is not explained. You know, people are not, they're thinking, oh, this is a positive reinforcement trainer. So there's, it's confusing, you know? And so I think that it's a very good reflex for you to think, I'm going to at least put the foundational bricks so that we have an understanding of where we are in that very confusing soup. (laughs) Right. And it goes back to one of the great, uh, benefits, joys of the internet is that there is this wealth of yes. information that you you can learn about anything. 
right. you know, everything under the sun. There's a yeah. lot out there. There's a lot out there. And it, and it's there's no turning back, you know. I mean, it's out there. So me, we may as well counterbalance the information. Right. And we don't want to turn it back or turn off the spigot, even though at times it can feel so overwhelming. They, you know, I want to learn it all. But part of it is learning how to be a selective yes. sifter. Mm-hmm. You know, how to, how to look at this, all this information that's coming at us that we're being bombarded with and understand, and that gets back to the question of ethics in part, mm-hmm. of how do I sort out, well, this part, this I will let through my sieve and, and I'll explore it further. And then also this understanding that if I want more than just a superficial I'm curious about what this topic, for example, right now in the, when I've been looking for the Horses for Future material in some of the regenerative farming techniques, one of the words that keeps coming up is permaculture. And for me, it's a new topic. What is that? Mm -hmm. I don't know that I want to study it in great depth. I don't know that yet. Maybe I do. But I just want a general, you know, what, what are they talking about? Okay, that's one layer. And then there's that layer of, well, suppose I wanted to study it, where would I begin? To, and so that understanding that if it's really worth studying, there is a complexity and a depth to this field and that I would want to build bricklayer by bricklayer by bricklayer, that that's a fundamental teaching that seems so important, that if something is really worth learning, that it will it will have a complexity to it for sure for sure absolutely and that it will take time and it will take time and it'll take for me i you know i i highly value mentorship it takes not thinking in a vacuum but being able to go with people who know more have more experience um, yes. and have them guide your thinking and yes. and so forth and so on. You yeah. know, there's there's also I think always you know you 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 produce DVDs, you write articles, you you share your knowledge, and years go by, you evolve. In a way, it takes courage because there are things you look at mm-hmm. that you did some years ago, and you think, Ooh, I I wouldn't say it like that today, but you did. <laughs> it's out there, and. You know, Alex always says, don't get mad at your, how, how do you say it? Don't get mad at your stepping stones, is it that you say? Yep. So it takes, mm-hmm. it takes you know, you want to be responsible, of course, when you're starting to express yourself out there. But like you said, science evolves, you evolve. And so there may be things that are no longer what you would say right or do today mm-hmm. or we can just do it we can just do it better or we can do it better so yeah when you look at it like that it can be very immobilizing you can say oh i'm not going out mm-hmm. there i'm not saying anything because in 5 years from now i'm going to regret it but at the same time i think that there's such a need out there and you know to share well, one of one of the one of the fun projects that I'm, and I I'm not sure when I'll have it finished finished because there are other things that keep popping up that I have to do first. But I've been getting lesson number one DVD up online 
but I'm not just putting it, I'm not just streaming it, I'm going through it and I'm adding text, I'm adding video, I'm going through little sections of it and looking at, well, now look at how, look at how I'm, I'm feeding with the wrong hand in that, you know, in that clip. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and it's really fun to sort Mm -hmm. of be coaching, looking at what I did 20 years ago and sort of giving the coaching update of, you know, that was fine, but this will give you an even better result. And I think going, Susan, going back to what you were just saying, it's really defining for us or giving some of the, if I want to learn about a field, what are some of the pieces that I want to put in place for myself? Having a mentor would be one of them. Um, so if you were advising someone in terms of you want to, they want to study particular area it doesn't really matter what it is it's going to take time it it is complex you having a mentor to guide you yeah really important so important so So what else would so if i'm not uh just dipping into the internet and being a ball in a pinball machine pinging from one so-called expert to another so-called expert Mm -hmm. Who are offering conflicting information? How do I steer a course that keeps me sane? Well, yeah, one thing is to go back to textbooks. You don't need to be in a college class to, you know, yesterday somebody wrote me and said, I'm new to the field. I've not completed any courses online, you know, like KPA or other courses. I've really just done self study. Well, LLA. <laughs> they haven't, none of those. Thank you. And um, <clears throat> she said she was interested in LLA, my online course. Sorry, Frog Voice. And uh, would the course help her know how to do functional analysis, build behavior modification programs, give her practice doing those? And, you know, it was this long laundry list that at the bottom, <laughs> the sum of it would be, you know, to be a, 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 an expert, to really have competence um, to go out there and, and influence well. And so I said to her, you know, you've got to get those foundational bricks. You can't start up there, in my opinion. And the first thing you can do is read Paul Chance's book, Learning and Behavior. And then from there, you can go to O'Neill's functional uh, assessment book and see what you think. And you need to find a mentor or a supervisor to help guide you and to get that application that you'll need, that supervised guided practice. So that, of course, wasn't what this person wanted to hear. But what I said to her is, no, my course will not do that because no single course can do that. And she said she turned away from a different curriculum available, another person whose business it is disseminating this information because it was too hard. And I said, yep, you got to crack that nut. So start where it's easy and reinforcing, and you're going to have to build from there. So one answer to that question, Alex, is you, you can start with those basic undergraduate textbooks. When I first started working with animals 20 plus years ago, I looked at all the intro or intermediate level text, undergraduate level textbooks from the ethology courses at the university. I got each one 
And while my kids were playing volleyball or whatever, whatever <laughs> activity I was taking them to, I'd sit in the back of the bleachers reading ethology textbooks. Now, I would never say that in having done so, I'm an ethologist. I would never hold myself accountable for giving com- complex ethological information to people asking. I would draw on an ethologist colleague, but it gave me kind of a feel for the belief system, the core principles, and how it looks when it's applied. Yes. Those are really three golden. It's a great schema, Alex. And so I'm able to work at a zoo, to stand shoulder to shoulder with zookeepers whose deeper expertise is in biology, zoology, ethology, ecology, and say, this is what behavior analysis can bring to this soup (laughs) <laughs> Dominique, that you mentioned to the soup, and I'm I'm a good person. If you I, I I'm a, turn to me if you want to go in that direction, and I will rely on you for your expertise in zoology, and we'll move together from there. But the idea that I can just you know in an email say to you, or even in an article, that has not been my contribution. My contribution has been or my intended contribution has been that real behavior 101 level. I am trying to give people information about a belief system, core principles, and how they might be applied. And if my readers want more or need more because of a particular behavior problem, then they need to seek the people who have that deep expertise. What you're saying, though, is true, Dominique. It's not like you can open up the yellow pages Mm -hmm. I'm dating myself that you can type in the white pages on your computer and look under experienced behavior analysis for complex programs, you know, and find, you know, as many as you would heart surgeons, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We're not there yet, but we are moving in that direction. If we, if we disseminate that core value that there are people for whom this is deep expertise mm-hmm. and you can learn the first few courses of bricks laid that will take care of 99% of what you and your animal yeah. need. But when you hit that top 1%, that's when I think, or at least I'm thinking today, you need to be get in contact with someone who holds that deep expertise. And Alex, I just wanted to comment. I too find, you know, going into the deeper levels, um, really fascinating, really fun and interesting. I'm thinking of our faculty conversations where Jesus will lead us to more complex stuff and uh, Joe Lang, who brings us to more complex stuff. And I, I really, I eat that up like, you know, Christmas dinner. It's just so enriching. But I spend a lot of time deciding on what of that is going to change what I do tomorrow with a zookeeper or a dog trainer. It is not It is not on autopilot that I hear no. something deeper. I then go and lay out all my textbooks, get <laughs> as deep as I want. And then my mentor, Carl Cheney, who uh, lives in this town, so I'm so privileged to meet with him at least weekly to talk these things over, that's why I'm so dedicated to this concept that people need supervisors and mentors to help them. 
you know, when I'll come back excited and I'll say, okay, I did the work. I'm ready to talk to you about some complex, like animals learning to work for shock, for example, you know, some more uh, deeper level of expertise. We'll go through it together and he'll, you know, he'll, he's kind of punishing in his mentorship, <laughs> but it's worth it. I'll sort of slap my ideas around a little bit, which is fine. And um, cause it's worth it. And then he'll sit back and he'll say to me, so, and this is just classic genie. It's so enriching in my life. His phrase is always the same. It's so now that you understand it, what problem have you solved? <laughs> For me, that is such a reminder such a light, a bright light to say, some of that more complex stuff is going to be very important in my work. And some of it is going to be important to somebody else's work who I admire, but not my work, not my path. Because my path is at the level at which I wrote this article. It's saying, think before you act. You may have reason to use punishment or negative reinforcement. Think before you act. Here are the things that our work should really be made of predominantly. Think before you act, you know. So that I hope that is in part just explaining what some of my current worries are about the glut yeah. of information that runs rampant across all levels of expertise and my observation that people are coming to me more and more for this advanced complex stuff. I can send them to the right mentor for that. And I say freely, I'm not the right mentor for that. I'm Behavior 101. But I'm also worried that we're somehow giving the impression that everybody needs to have deep expertise in everything, including anesthesia, including the new path you're pursuing. Say again what that field is. It was permaculture, permaculture. but I'm not, I'm not pursuing it. I'm just curious to find out what it is. Well, I don't have to anesthetize my dog. I don't know how to say it in English, but I do have to walk him mm -hmm. on a leash. And, mm -hmm. and there are many ways I can do that. You know, in your article, you also say something, it's not exactly like that, but that the, we, our animals shouldn't pay for the, for our lack of skill and knowledge. So mm -hmm. I feel we have a responsibility to develop our knowledge and our skills. As soon as we decide that we, right. going, we are going to take care of an animal, we cannot not know at least the foundation. And the foundation, you can spend a lot of time there. You know, I think that after, for me, eight, 11 years or something, I'm still very much just at the beginning and every time that I think you know I've pretty much am clear about something yes Jesus will come up with something and I'm like oh no <laughs> now I'm going to spend the mm -hmm. next two weeks trying to understand this and there are things I'm still struggling with and sometimes I feel like I'm a broken record with these things but there are still questions there that you know, even after talking with you and going in the books, and it's not clear to me. There's still part of it that I'm confused about. Which talk was well, that? Well, the Sorry, one on, I didn't hear. Um, you know, the, uh, the theory of avoidance. And I've been kind of mm -hmm. pushing to get more answers, but I'm still not satisfied with the answers I have gotten. And so it's not over for me. As it shouldn't be over mm. for you. 
Because to understand those nuances, I mean, in a way you're making the point I'm making, is to understand the nuances that would give you great confidence would take a lot yeah. of work. It would take a lot of reading, a lot of processing, a lot of discussion, a lot of going back to get some of the foundational information that opens those doors to understanding that line of study. Mm -hmm. And so when you say, I'm not satisfied, I have more work to do, which you may choose to do or you may not choose to do, depending on how you're allocating mm -hmm. your time regarding answering the question, what problem will it solve mm. for you? Right. Yep. That that is what I'm talking about. It's an excellent question because sometimes you can yeah. go and I, you know, as as a general rule, I always try to use positive reinforcement. So, it, I, you know, I could say, mm -hmm. well, why am I spending all this time on negative reinforcement? But I feel I need to understand it because it I'm sh it happens. You know, even though we mm -hmm. don't want to, we don't use it as a strategy, I want to understand it because, for, for many reasons. So it's, uh, so it's a good question, you know, how much time am I going to allocate this rather than, let's say, mm -hmm. having fun building duration, which can also be a challenge in, in a freestyle yes. routine. You know, what, what do I That's pick? Right. right. And this, I worry now, this is not meant to discount or disrespect the people who hold this deep expertise. You know, I adore having those people in my life and I seek them out. But it does take a lot of bricklaying for those doors to open. And I think that sometimes when we think we understand and then it's like a butterfly, it flies away. And then we work again and we think we've got it, but we turn around and try to explain it to someone and it flew away mm -hmm. again, really is indicative of not having the foundation information that we need that would bring mm. us there. What I'm saying is that Sidman avoidance paradox is tricky business. This is not cocktail banter for most of us, although I can right away I'm seeing the people for whom it would be cocktail banter. Those people typically have had many decades of study of the big mm -hmm. picture as they zero in on that one amazing thread. So I think giving yourself both the permission to stay in that confusion and also holding your teachers accountable for better explanations and for giving you the course of study, where can you go to build the steps you need to get to the point where you understand mm. it? And again, my answer is those textbooks. Before you go to the primary literature, where we have, you know, Azrin and Holtz's work and Sidman's work and so forth, that you open up mm. Paul Chance, see what he has to mm -hmm. say about it. Then you move to Mazur and see what he has to say about it. And then you move to Pearson Cheney and see what they have to say about it. So to ask yourself to dive into the deep end without your water wings on, you know, maybe too much to ask. It is too much for me. But I do have this history of a path that I can take to get me there. I do the work. I start at the beginning level and I build my prerequisite understanding before I dive into that primary mm -hmm. research. So that may help you and yes. others who want to understand it. 
Why? Because we're curious. I'm not saying we shouldn't jump, you know, we shouldn't pick a beautiful apple that's at the very top of the tree. It's beyond our current reach. But we want that apple. I want to understand that avoidance paradox. I want to understand nonlinear analysis. I want to understand emotions. Mm. These are apples that were at the top of my 101 tree. So how do we get up there? What ladders do we need to build to reach them? And then once we, just for understanding's sake, and then once we understand them, we can ask the question, do I need that in my work with What problem have I solved? What problem have I solved by knowing that? That's golden. And it's not always an easy answer, you know. Knowledge is important for its own sake. And we're I'm constantly delighted. That's the Easter egg idea. Delighted by how something I thought was esoteric ends up influencing how I define negative reinforcement. That didn't come from reading intro definitions. It came from teaching it, you know, 10,000 times before. And each time I start, I noticed I was slimming my definition mm-hmm. down from the textbook definition further until one day I woke up and there it was much simpler in a single sentence without all of these convoluted paths back on itself, you know, like a snake eating its own tail is some of those definitions can drive you crazy. When you're teaching beginners, they're not, they're not as good at, you know, they're not the best we can do. Which brings out a really powerful part of this, which is, I mean, when you look at this definition of negative reinforcement, as you presented it, how few words are there and how, how clear it is. And it looks so simple. Oh, duh, why didn't we just say it that way for the last, you know, but it's, yeah, it's true. 20 years, 30 years, 40 yeah. years of study. When you, we, so, you know, why do we value this great depth of study that each one of us can undertake? Why is that of value? Why is that worth doing? Because when we listen to what you said to the clerk in Staples, who was moving in when you were inching away to buy the the printer, or the individual behind the counter whose mask was halfway down, Mm -hmm. that the elegance, the kindness, the effectiveness of those statements, that that didn't just come out of nothing. That came out of 40 years of studying behavioral analysis and holding yourself to an ethical standard. And so, you know, we see encapsulated in that what you are saying about the value of laying those foundational bricks. And when when you lay the foundation... That's what lets you reach up for that wonderful apple that you so want to have. You know, I want to ride. Of course you want to ride. Of course you want to ride. And you could get on and ride right now and it would be okay. But it would be glorious if you added a few more layers of understanding there. Absolutely. Absolutely what I'm trying to express. And it's it takes... I think another the thing that may be interesting to people listening to disseminators as we are and the struggles we have, it takes incredible restraint 
to not say everything you know. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Doesn't it? Yes. You know? So as I've learned more, the slides are the same in LLA, the online class, but what I say about them is very different. And I've had to add an extra hour to each class in order to give those basics and a little bit of what I've learned that it's not so basic. Yes. It takes so much restraint, which we would have to operationalize um, as a construct. You know, what does it look like? What am I doing? I'm not. And I'm as I train the teacher assistants and co-instructors in that class, you know, hoping to bring in a new instructor every couple of years to just keep spreading further and further. I can see that the newest ones will uh, query a student's homework answer and expect a much higher level of knowledge than I want for the objective for that lecture just because they understand it now. Yeah. And so they, they, yep. the reinforcer is in showing people, and I don't, again, this, the, the words sound more negative than I feel. One of the reinforcers in deep expertise is showing other people what you know and yes. your love of it and that for you, it does solve the problems and you want to give it and give it and give it. But what I'm imagining, what I'm seeing, the, the, the characterization in my mind's eye, when I look at my audience, is like these people with their heads back, their mouths wide open, and I'm just like gavage feeding. I'm like shoving food, <laughs> you know, and that is not effective. I mean, their, their behavior punishes me for going for the reinforcer of showing what I know and my enthusiasm and love of it because they're looking at me with their eyes spinning in their heads. And so that's how I came across a simpler yet, yet accurate, I, I hope, definition for the four quadrants and the procedures that we use is all these many years, and it's 40 years over that I've been teaching groups of people, the fundamentals, when I say negative reinforcement is a procedure by which consequences are delivered in order to, and the snake starts to eat its tail. Yes. And I look at the audience and they're looking back at me like, is it time for the coffee break? You know, which punishes me from just reciting these textbook definitions and saying, I mean, what's the purpose of punishment is to change what you do. Yes. I have to change what I do. As a teacher, I am not effective enough. So I am pretty dug into this idea of wanting to be one of the many people who are delivering foundational stuff. I celebrate people who are giving us more. And I'm always there in their audience, listening and learning. And then some of it filters back into what I'm doing and, and some of it doesn't. I'm just happy to know it and see if it unfolds as relevant to my work in the future. And that's part of the discussion about this article as well is who is it for? What are the goals? And is it effective in meeting those goals? If we could have at the you know basic foundational level of people influencing animal behavior, have them carry this information into their work to think about that hierarchy in their mind's eye and say, wait, I could just pick up that hose, but before I do, I'm going to think about shaping movement towards the shift door. Then I will have contributed something I think that is useful 
that does solve on the ground problems that people have at that level. And then when they need more, they bring in people with deep expertise. Yes. Yes. And the, the more you explore the 101, the more it blurs with what is actually advanced. Yes. Because when you look at the elegance and the power of those core, basic, fundamental principles and techniques, the more, the more you see, the more universal they become, the more powerful they become, the more effective they become, the more control you can hand back to the learner. Mm-hmm. You know, all of those things come out of really knowing the basics extraordinarily well. I think so. And I think to try and jump up at the more complicated apples before you've got the slats on the ladder, the more likely you are to just fall down and yeah. uh, hit the hit the dirt. And, and the animal stands a higher chance of suffering for the inappropriate, unskilled application. And another concern I'll just throw in is one that really I think of Paul Chance, uh, who is a wonderful friend and mentor in many ways. He said very early on in my writing those very early articles, you know, 20 years ago about behavior analysis for animal work, he said, don't make it too easy or they won't respect it. So that's the other side of our coin, (laughs) right? And I thought, oh my God, you know, I never even considered that. I found myself saying that to a new veterinary textbook editor who I wrote with Dr. Cynthia Stringfield, a veterinarian. I wrote a a chapter on behavior change with, and she said, well, I'm going to put in some, some examples of how this works from functional assessment through behavior change and data taking. And um, so I'll just talk about, and she gave me some very, very simple, very simple things like maybe teaching a dog to sit or, I don't know. I'd have to think about remember what she said. And sure enough, Paul Chance came through my fingertips as I typed back <laughs> to her. <laughs> Take care. We need examples that are that simple, but we also might need one that's a little more complex because I'm not an advocate for, for example, veterinarians doing the work of experienced, high yes. expertise behavior analysts, nor am I. <laughs> the reverse, nor am I going to give advice on anesthesia. So we have some very interesting dilemmas to navigate, you know, as we hop from stone to stone. It is not a straight line. It's a, I want you to know everything I know, but I don't want you to think you have my expertise. Call me, you know, it, it's tricky business. Yes. Um, it, and by tricky business, I mean, it just takes this kind of careful thinking that the three of us are doing today to navigate how we want to move this ship through the different locks, you know, that are in front of us. It's not so obvious. In the one hand, I'm arguing for more complexity in what people know and do. Caesar Milan, who still is on TV, as far as I know, needs more complexity in his understanding of the basics of behavior. On the other hand, I'm saying, don't make it so simple that everybody thinks that in a single course they have what they need to hang a shingle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that's not a surprise, is it? That both of those statements are true. 
and that right. we need to be thoughtful to figure out how to navigate them. And it's also recognizing that there is just a huge amount to learn, to study, to know about. And, you know, I have a reasonable knowledge of how to feed my horses, but I'm not an equine nutritionist. And so if there's a situation with horses where more than a superficial understanding of how to feed horses is needed, well, of course I'm going to direct that person to somebody who has spent a lifetime studying equine nutrition. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's true of every aspect of this. I know something about how to uh, evaluate a horse's foot in terms of, is that a reasonable balance on that foot? I know how to trim my own horses, sort of, maybe. Mm-hmm. But if I really, if we have a, a horse that really needs to have advanced foot care, of course we're going to call in somebody who's made it their life passion. Exactly. So we have a wealth of at, really at our fingertips, uh, we can reach out to people who've made a particular area of interest their life passion. Right. And those are the people that you want to draw into your circle and, and enrich your circle with their knowledge, their expertise. What can they add to the mix as you pursue your own depth of knowledge within the things that really draw you and you're passionate about? That is exactly what I mean. And I'm spending a lot of time thinking about that and how can we convey that without sounding like, you know, we've got something other people don't have or, or uh, I don't know, of all the many, you know, it can be, it can be hurtful for someone to say, well, I appreciate your interest in deeper expertise, but go back to 101 and see it in five years. And yet I think often of Ken Ramirez's program at Shed, where the beginning trainers were only allowed to maintain fluent behaviors and were not allowed to divert from a simple ABC, give the cue, animal response, bridge and treat uh, system, and that that went on for years before they were actually the pinnacle, you know, the level that we would label deeper deep expertise would be where they could actually on the fly decide to accept an animal not responding to a cue and do something else instead. So, you know, there are little glimmers, glimmering stars out there of what we're talking about, but they're in a systematic program and they're not just you know, that just didn't happen by people typing in train beluga. <laughs> no, it didn't. No. It didn't. And I think being exposed to various levels of advancement has a benefit because if, and of course we should actually define what we mean by 101, how far does that go? And that might be... Um, an interesting, you know, it might make what I'm going to say different, but if you learn the very basics and it doesn't work, 
there are two choices. You can either get more knowledge and skills, or you can say this doesn't work. Because we all know positive reinforcement can go wrong, very wrong. People can, I mean, not positive reinforcement, but the way people use it, apply Apply it. it. Yes, of course. So the fact that you are exposed to things that maybe are a little bit too advanced for you, it opens a door where you say, okay, this is not working the way I want it because my knowledge and skills are lacking and there is information Mm -hmm. out there and I need to continue to learn. Yes, absolutely. A a very important point. So to say that I'm learning ethology on the one-on-one level is not to say that I can't listen or participate or read in more advanced levels. That is absolutely the fertilizer that grows expertise. Absolutely, I agree. And that's why I adore having opportunities to sit with uh, Clicker Expo faculty and um, university faculty and so forth. To be able to see the endless sea, right? Instead of just building the ship by giving me the hammer and the nail, but to have an opportunity to see what that ship is going to do, where it's going to go, what the what the vast and endless sea looks like is so important to knowing what the next steps are, you know, what the next goal to achieve is. Yeah. So all of that has to be, it's no wonder why people are confused. All of this has to be, you know, thoughtfully considered and arranged. It could also be haphazard, but I guess I would say it can't be haphazard while you're working with a learner. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm at step five in complexity, but I saw this great podcast. So I'm going to, you know, shoehorn this into what I do. Mm -hmm. Oops. I guess I didn't know enough about that now. You know, when we think about like the medical profession, are we moving in the direction where we're teaching people how to remove appendix, you know, on the internet? Mm. As someone who doesn't have a lot of history using the surgical equipment and so forth and so on. I mean, I'm trying, I'm groping to find an analogy where we're so comfortable building expertise brick by brick layer by brick. And for each individual, the layers might may look different. The color of the brick may look different. The height of the wall looks different, but the concept that there are prerequisite skills before you should use what you've learned on a patient, on a learner, on a client, um, I think is so, so basic. And I think about the other professions, you know, who do we pick when we have to have a root canal? And, you know, the one time I picked a brand new dentist, he botched it up terribly and it had to be redone <laughs> by some old guy, you know, <laughs> um, who had lots of experience. So not to go too rambling, but really the basic idea is that we need it all, but we can't use it all until we have demonstrated expertise. And the last thought about this, I just haven't, we haven't talked about that's so basic in my values and practice is the idea of an interdisciplinary team. I mean, we've hovered around that, but coming from special ed, from a behavior analysis view of special education, 
the interdisciplinary team is so basic to working with children. And I think we need to do more of that. Um, and that's what I mean when I say I would turn to an ethologist, I would turn to an ecologist. I don't hold myself accountable for having a veterinarian, deep expertise in all these related, what I would call the science sisters, all these related levels of analysis. Mm -hmm. The idea, I mean, uh, Rick Hester, um, one of my co-instructors and um, the uh, training, the head of training at Cheyenne Mountain Zoo, whenever we talk about what he's working on, uh, he laughs because my very first question is always, I listen to his program, his idea, his program to change behavior. And then my first question is, who's the penguin expert? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Who's the gorilla expert? Have you contacted, who's, who's that person on our team before we launch into, you know, changing behavior in these conditions? What do we need to know? And so I enjoy that interdisciplinary team. It has been a fundamental component of my work from the very, very beginning at 18 years old, from the very beginning. And I think we need more of that. And I didn't hit that home very well in the article. It could have been another section, right? The need for interdisciplinary teams. We all can't be deeply expert at everything that needs to be brought together to help a learner. So I think I think this is a phenomenal gift that you're giving in this conversation. Because for example, you cited the the shed aquarium and the training program that, that Ken had and and produced phenomenal trainers because those they were in a very structured program that went over a period of years. But if I'm a horse person who's just by myself in my own barn, I don't have easy access to a trainer, but I do have access to the internet, and, and I'm feeling overwhelmed. What you have just given that person is our guideposts our roadmap. These are the resources that you want to be looking out for. This is what you want to create for yourself. You want a good interdisciplinary team. You're not, you're not going to be your horse's vet. You're not going to necessarily be designing your horse's nutritional program and, mm -hmm. and his foot care and all the other things. You're not going to build your own saddle. My goodness. No one person is going to have all of the world's knowledge. Of course not. So we're going to have that interdisciplinary team. We're going to have the mentors. Let's go back to the primary resources for the field. You're, you're giving this phenomenal roadmap to people that I think is a tremendous gift because it's so easy to be immobilized. We've used that word several times. Yeah. It's so easy to be immobilized by the vast abundance of information that we have available to us. And a lot of that information is tremendous information. Yeah. It's just, what do we absorb? You know, what do we look at first? And, and we can have so much that we look at nothing. Yeah. And right. then our animals suffer. I'd like to hear you, Susan, quick, quick question on textbooks. Because you sometimes hear people talk about textbooks in a rather 
not negative way, but condescending way, like textbooks are too simple, they're not real life situation. What do you think about those comments? Yeah, I haven't heard that um, so much. So I'm glad to know that that's something that you hear have. because it should be yeah, addressed. I have. Yeah, yeah. Um, I often hear, I can't uh, read textbooks because they're too expensive for me to buy uh, a beginning behavior analysis textbook would cost, you know, hundreds of dollars. Uh, Sidman's Coercion and Its Fallout, hundreds of dollars. And even Ken's Animal Training book with the compilation of relevant articles, it was very expensive. And we don't want expense to be an obstacle to people getting the knowledge that they're seeking. So I always recommend that people buy yeah. old editions. And I know, being an academic, the publication racket that accounts for the expensiveness of Latest these version. Um, yeah. textbooks, it, it's the changes from edition to edition are usually very small. Unless there's a really big breakthrough, like there has been in neuroscience and genetics, and even then the textbooks are very slow to blaze any trails. But for the, what we're talking about, old editions are, I wanted, the word that came to my mind was delicious. You know, I feel <laughs> in Africa, they, um, in the country I was in, in Lesotho, the word delicious accounts for have a good weekend, have a delicious weekend. You can see what the emphasis is on have a yeah. delicious Christmas. And I guess I'm in the habit of equating delicious food with delicious brain, brain food. Those older editions are delicious and you can get them for a dollar, you know, $5, $10 versus $280. And so I do encourage the reason why I am always, and I, I don't often hear people encourage textbooks. So it's, it's a good opportunity you're giving me to explain that is because the textbooks are giving us pre-vetted information. So Paul Chance has already gone through the articles in the area he's writing about for that chapter and picked the ones that meet robust standards for making the point he's making or disseminating information. And then what the edited editions do over the years is as science self-corrects, he'll drop out those and add new ones. In fact, Cheney and Pierce and Cheney are doing a new edition now. And so I haven't seen Cheney in weeks because it's very tedious work to go through the citations you used four years ago and make sure you're up to date. So that's why I like textbooks because the information in a, in a good textbook is already, should we say, um, pre-ironed. It's like buying a wrinkle-free shirt, mm. you know, it's that it made it to the textbook. If it's a, a good textbook, one that stood the test of time, then it's already the author who has deep, deep, deep expertise. So now that's three levels of depth <laughs> and we've only been talking about one, <laughs> has already ironed out the wrinkles and delivered the material where they vetted the validity and the relevance the usefulness of many of, of the, of the articles mm. they use. That's why I like textbooks. When we send people to the primary research, which is sort of all the fashion now, I read an article, Matt, and I'm like, really? I had to read that article 14 mm. times. Times, yes. You know, but okay. When we send people to the primary research, we are under underestimating how much skill it takes 
to review articles well for reliability and validity. So I, for 15 years, taught the research methods Mm -hmm. class in the graduate school for the College of Education. So I had students coming from uh, phys ed and communication disorders and every every department. It, It is another area of deep expertise to consume these articles, evaluating their reliability, their validity, and their relevance to anything we need to know with the work that we're doing. So that's another kind of little caution or concern that I carry among the several that you've let me share in this podcast is, you know, how do you know how to evaluate these articles? And of course, what I would do with my students was I'd give them an article that had been published in a reputable journal, and their job was to find the errors or the rival hypotheses for the author's conclusions. And it is very rare to find an article that doesn't have weaknesses that need to be considered before you disseminate those conclusions. Well, because it's hard to go through those primary or uh, primary resources, books are secondary resources. They've been pre-prepared, pre-judged for us. Those primary sources, you would need to know what to look for. Instead, what we see is people reading the abstract and reporting only the findings in the abstract. Yes. They don't go through the first section, which is the review of previous related literature, to see if the people have tapped into the most relevant literature that came before them. We don't see them evaluating the methods they used or the statistics, which are most often done poorly, if there's one area that's really done poorly, even in referee journals, you know, um, vetted journal articles, it would be the statistical analysis. And then they, and then people jump over all of that. Maybe if they're going to read more than the abstract, they will read yeah. the conclusion, and then they start disseminating this with authority. And I'm like, well. You know, I read that study too. And what I found was they used the wrong statistics. They reported, for example, only inferential statistics, statistical significance, and they should have included effect sizes or confidence intervals or, you know, blah, blah, I can go on. This is an area that I inadvertently got moderate level of expertise to teach the moderate level of classes. You know, I'm I'm there scratching my head. So I very rarely ask people to, unless they have those skills, to go to primary research, go to the the textbooks first. And then if you want more expertise, more information, you can find the articles that the author, the authors have cited. And so that's what I did with the great discussion we had about, you know, avoidance is I started at the beginning, the basic level, and I read through probably six or seven in escalating the complexity of textbook. And then I went to the Azrin and Holtz articles. I picked which ones I thought were most relevant. I checked with Joe Lang, which ones, you know, he was referring to, you know, so I called in my mentors and um, yeah, tried to prepare and still to talk on it well 
I would need another year of study. Mm. So I hope that answers your yeah. question, Dominique, because it's such a great one is why do I keep harping on go to the textbooks first, start with the easy ones, the undergrad freshman level, move your way up to the senior level, and then go on from there. And I also would advise if you're interested in consuming primary studies, that you either take a course in it, or you buy a book on how to consume research well. And there are some really outstanding monographs, not always big texts, on things like evaluating the adequacy of their review of literature, how to see some of the top 10 mistakes in statistical treatment, and so Well, you and gave so a on. presentation on this at Clicker Expo. I did. It was a good. Oh, and I was so yeah, happy was to do presentation. it. Mm-hmm. So small attendance, but but good reviews. So we have to keep yeah. building on that. I was in so the was audience. I. Yeah, yeah. I remember that talk. <laughs> my my younger daughter was in the audience, and she gave me ten pages of feedback <laughs> about how to get more clear. So that was fun, and I was fortunate to have that too. So, what advice <laughs> yeah, would you yeah. give podcasters on this topic? Related to behavior to, analysis and dog tr- and animal training, or or I should say animal training, who are trying to give the best scientific advice that they know of. Get good guess. <laughs> That's the advice. <laughs> you know. Get, yeah, I mean, yeah. there is. Yeah, there are there are different levels of skill. There are different skill objectives criteria for I think really good podcasts and. So there's the stuff that I don't think you're necessarily talking about, which is interview skills, because some of the podcasts I've done in the many, many that I've done in the last, maybe it's been 10 years or, or less, that it's become so um, popular, is um, I've really noticed that my ability to deliver an interesting and informative podcast is very dependent on, guess what, context, like all behavior including the interviewer, you know, are they asking questions that lead me to say something that might be interesting and or important for people. So if I were doing podcasts, I'd probably read up on interview skills because there are some very good books on, on interviewing. Um, I know of some just from um, clinical psychology, you know, how do you talk to your clients in ways that um, open them up to give you the information you need? And um, I wouldn't assume that there was like some native talent. I'm sure there is some, but that there would be more to gain by, by looking into that. And then being knowledgeable about the field at at least that beginner's level is having enough background so that the questions you ask um, have substance. The questions have substance that lead the responder to give substantive answers which you two do, of course, in spades. I mean, it's really fun to work with you every time, every time. And um, in terms of information, yes, you know, I think, I don't know, you know, I, I really have to give this more thought. I think that giving people the more advanced, the opportunity to listen to more advanced knowledge and speakers in podcasts is wonderful. 
And like you, I'm like a mouse, you know, you put down this giant block of cheese, I start running, I'm nibbling, and then I run back to my books to bring it to the larder, and then I come forward again and get some more. So it does give people the view of the vast and endless sea. It also shows people that just clicking is not what we're talking about, that this is an area of deep and endless information, like Paul Chan says, don't make it too easy or people won't understand that this is a science discipline and a deep field. So I do agree it's wonderful to hear more advanced topics by people who hold deep expertise in them. I think I would just probably do that disclaimer mm -hmm. that you know we're always advocating for you building the competencies, building the knowledge and skills, a course of brick by course of brick, and that this is an opportunity to see how high the wall can be built. It is not necessarily to solve a problem you have today. And that before you grab something and use it, you might want to see what else you need to read, listen to, or a mentor to check things off. Mm -hmm. You know, when I work with, for example, self injurious behavior, mm -hmm at zoos, most deeply with one particular elephant that Alex has heard me talk about a lot because it, it was a huge responsibility. Yeah. You know, I, I did convene people who had more expertise in behavior analysis and self-injurious behavior, as well as ethologists, as well as veterinarians to work our way through what ended up being a very resource-heavy program and one that was successful, I'll add, but it, you know, it's a lot of responsibility to change another organism's behavior, especially when one of your core principles is that behavior is mm. functional. Behavior serves a function. So before you remove a functional behavior from the repertoire, what is the function and how can you replace mm. that? And, you know, all of those things that are not your 101 level, so I think I would probably give that disclaimer. I'd probably say that this is, this is an opportunity to enjoy a view of the vast and endless sea, and it will help you know where you need to, what are the ongoing objectives in your course of study and developing your own expertise. Mm -hmm. So in no way would I not encourage people to have the more deep, complex stuff on podcasts. I, I just wouldn't talk about it like everybody should have this deep expertise in order to do mm -hmm. what we're doing when we're doing our training. Right. I would never have guessed that this was the direction <laughs> that that we were that this conversation today was going to take, but it's been a phenomenal direction to flow into. And this deep and endless sea is truly deep and endless. And we could talk for another, you know, five hours and we would still be chattering away and enjoying it. But I, I, I think we should perhaps instead say thank you immensely, immensely, immensely for a very enriching mm. afternoon. And I know we'll do it again because I think we all enjoy it. And I know I gain so much from it. So, Susan, thank you for this. This has been tremendous. Should we tell people where they can find this article? Yes. Uh, yes. 
You can find it from my Facebook page. If you scroll to the place where I've introduced it, you can, uh, you'll be able to find it on Zoo Spenceful, um, Peter Gildum's site. And it will also be in the IAATE magazine in August. That's the International Association of Avian Trainers and Educators. It will also be in the IAABC journal for <laughs> August. That's the International Association of um, Animal Behavior Consultants. And I'll just say, talk about core values. When I asked IAABC, did they need the article to be a sole source to them or could I offer it elsewhere? They said, offer it to whomever is interested. And when I asked IAATE, was it okay to re- have an article, which by that point would be a reprint from a different journal? They said, we'd be more than happy to be the second to, you know, in line. Th- these are beautiful yeah. values. They really speak to people having dissemination be their first yeah. priority. Can you give the title again? Yes, I actually have it up because, you know, it's been a month since I've written it. So who knows what the title is? Uh, Why Animals Need Trainers Who Adhere to the Least Intrusive Principle, Improving Animal Welfare, and Honing Trainer Skills. And um, I also just wanted to share with your learners and audience that I'll be doing a webinar version of the article. So it'll have videos to make the points clearer and um, slides for Grisha, uh, Grisha Stewart at um, Grisha. I'm sorry that I didn't have a link prepared, but maybe I can get that to you. It's right in front of me. And then you can, um, you can add that because it's really nice. I think to network, especially between horse and dog and, horse, dog, and zoo, and children, and uh, that's always one of the things I, I Would the webinar have so the much. same title? Yes. Or, yeah, it will. Mm-hmm. And your Facebook group is, your Facebook page okay. is? Uh, Behavior Works. Yes. Facebook, Behavior Works. My website's behaviorworks.org. So it's org, not com, and it's Behavior Works, not Behavior I'm just seeing, I do, oh, on my website is a link under um, upcoming mm-hmm. events to Grisha, Grisha Stewart's webinar coming up in September. And her her website is, or, yeah, website is grishastewart.com. Okay. That's the part I wasn't sure whether it was Ahisma or if it was grishastewart.com. So Take a look at GrishaStewart.com and see it there. I think it would be an, a really nice adjunct to the wandering and unfolding that you two interviewers honor me with to be very more didactic in delivering the information will also be, I think, hopefully worthwhile for our community. Yeah, excellent. Yes. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. I mean, if we turned off the recording equipment and just met once a month to talk about behavior, it would be a highlight of my every month. So (laughs) thank you. I mean, you lead me to places that help me clarify both what I know and what I need to learn. And it's really a privilege to, to discuss these things with both of you. We could, we can certainly turn off the recording equipment. I can hear people screaming, no, no, don't do that. But I know selfishly that I would enjoy that. So 
Yeah, I pretty much let it all hang out. There were a few moments of restraint, but very few. (laughs) Thanks again. Yes, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Normally, I use the end of the podcast for announcements, but we have already talked so long. I'm just going to say that if you want to learn more about the course of bricks that I lay down for horse training, please visit my website, theclickercenter.com. There you'll find my online course, the books and DVDs, my blog, and the announcements for any upcoming events. And speaking of events, if you want to reach for some of those delicious apples that Susan was talking about, I'll be scheduling some stay-at-home clinics for the fall. Again, just go to my website, theclickercenter.com, to learn more. And I hope to see you at one of these events. They're a great way to explore clicker training in all of its many layers. So thank you for listening, and have fun.